I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the show. How's it going? Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Um, I noticed that you have a hole in your van. The roof vent ripped off while I was in France and the replacement part has a crack in it. So. Oh, no. When it rains, it pours into the van. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but yeah, it's not ideal. Yeah. Well, we're recording from the van today. We haven't done that for a while because Tia was on her clinical trial. Um, so it's nice to be back recording in the van. Even if it rains a little bit inside, we're very happy to be back in our cozy corner, ready to have some fun conversations. Yes. And the van is going on an exciting adventure this weekend. Where's it off to? Oh, we're going to Camp Quirky. Yes. Again, we were there last year. And actually one year since we started this whole podcast. So congrats to everyone who stayed with us this whole time. <laughs> we super appreciate your listening and like engaging with us as we've talked across so many different topics over the past year. If you've been listening for a year, send us an email because I'm going to send you something. Yes. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> JRNYpodcast at gmail.com. We're on working on the honor system. If you have legit been listening for a year, send me an email and I'll send you something fucking dope. <laughs> How will we know though that they have been? <laughs> we don't need to. That's why I said honor system. Yeah, we don't yeah. need to know. Yeah. I trust our listeners. And that's very exciting if you have been. Love to meet you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and so as Tia said, a year ago we were at Camp Quirky and that's when we did we were the podcast hosts at Camp Quirky last year. We're not gonna read into anything that they haven't invited us back to podcast. Oh yeah. Ooh. I am doing a session. Ooh, what are you doing a session on? I'm doing a session on self-defense in van life. Oh, that's so cool. Because yeah. a lot of people, well, not a lot, but a few people spoke to us about that last time, didn't mm -hmm. they? And they were talking about baseball, using baseball bats and that kind move. of thing. Yeah. So that's so exciting. I've got a name for your session and it's uh, Fearless Van Defenders. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you sent me a Canva thing and I just kind of ignored that. <laughs> what? The less human rights defenders and more van defenders. Say it again. I feel as van defenders. Okay. Mm, kind <laughs> of, but you'll if, if we reflect back on the Oxfam thing, you, you've mm. got to use person first language. That's right. So defenders of the van. Defenders of fearless vans? <laughs> I like defenders of the van. <laughs> fearless defenders of vans. Yes. Okay. It's a I bit like clunky. It. Yeah, it is a little There's a reason you're not in marketing. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so yes, it's super exciting. Yeah, I think it will be cool. I think can't be believe that was a year ago. And we um, searched some amazing people at that festival. Yeah. Um, Evie Muir is one of them yeah. who um, runs Peaks of Colour, which is a outdoor group for just people of colour. Yeah. And that's where we really had some great in-depth conversations about creating safe spaces and that white people bring a lot of like issues. Sorry, I'm really simplifying that. <laughs> Not every space needs to have white people in it. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it's safer for people of color to not have white people in it. Definitely agree with you that a space without white people is and should be more. It should be there. And actually, I think that's where a lot of um, sometimes reactions as to the exclusion of white people, the reactions from other white people can be quite telling in those spaces. Um, I think on Twitter and stuff where there are white people aren't allowed, I've seen comments where it's like, oh, you know, you're excluding people. White people have literally every corner of this planet. Fuck off. Yeah, that was generally Evie's message. What do you want to talk about today? So I wanted to talk about a book that I read a couple of years ago called Factfulness. And it's a book by Hans Rosling with Ola Rosling and Anna Rosling Runland. Family and affair. 
indeed. And it says 10 reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. It sort of fits in the category of those kind of nonfiction books that are a bit popularist and people sort of read about and get popular. <laughs> I described exactly what I said. So um, popularist <laughs> books that are popular. <laughs> and the reason I wanted to, to bring it up and talk about it was because on our show, we've talked a lot about bias and negativity bias and statistics and data in the world. And if you recall, we had an episode about the OECD, the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, that talked about the kind of indicators and data that they use to tell a story about the world. So, for example, the GDI. What does that stand for? I have no idea in what context you are trying to use this. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, what is it? I've just started a memory blank. You know, where the index of like economic um, GDP, yes. gross domestic product. <laughs> so, for example, like that, you know, these major indicators that, that, large institutions measure and sort of tell a story about where people are in the world or, or growth, economic growth, different countries and the categorization of countries into low income, middle income, high income, these kinds of things. So this book starts to kind of unravel and talk about this data and how we view it and the pictures that it's telling us. And it starts with, sorry, I'll read actually this bit. It says the book challenges common misconceptions and stereotypes around the world, encouraging a more fact-based and nuanced understanding of global trends and issues. So it starts actually with a little introductory quiz. So I was wondering if I could quiz you. Thank you. Um, this is not a very good engaged consent process, but yes, you. Oh, should I do. run through some questions as to where your data is going to be publicly? Yes, ideally. So just an FYI, it will be on, on public <laughs> Spotify, <laughs> Apple, everyone will be able to listen to this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If you get a question wrong, everyone will know. Um, no well, pressure. I can always just re-record my answers since I do the editing. Whoa. So we have um, the first question. Okay. In all low income countries across the world today, how many girls finish primary school? Is it A, 20%, B, 40% or C, 60%? Low income countries in all of them. Yes. The percentage of girls who finish primary school. Yes. 60%. So the answer is indeed 60%. Mm. Yes. Okay. Very good. I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say like my interpretation. But primary school is a low bar. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I don't want to introduce my negativity bias, but, you know, once <laughs> girls start menstruating, that's when they start dropping off. Yeah, exactly. I think that this this does only cover kind of like one portion of an education of a, a girl. So, yeah, I mean, I can and twist a fact as well as hands can. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, next question. Where does the majority of the world population live? In low-income countries, middle-income countries, or high-income countries? The majority of the population yeah. of the world. Yeah. So Asia. So is that low, middle or high? Because actually one thing I realised, and I think this is a critique of the book overall, is when you dive into this quiz and kind of the introduction piece, what makes a low, middle, high is not clear mm. at this point. So it kind of assumes that you know what the parameters are of those. Right. And I don't know if I do personally, to be honest. Right. For me, I, I could guess 
what they are, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't know like it, what the shade of jumping between them is. Okay. But anyway, from your own personal assumptions, what do you think of this? I would say middle income. That is correct. Oh, <laughs> genius in the house. <laughs> but I think like I would have. But that required two-step logic there. Okay, so go me, on. But go ahead. No, go on. Explain. Well, I had to think about where the majority of the people in the world live. Yes. Which is why I said Asia. Yes. And then I thought of all the countries in Asia. Yes. And then I decided that it was probably middle. Yeah, I think that's a really good logic. Because I think personally, I would have said low income, I think. It's because you're a racist. Probably, yeah. (laughs) And, and, well, probably, yes. But also, I think that, like, and this thinking back to, like, my master's degree in international development. You You should give that back, by the way. Give what back? Your degree. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, I think back in my degree, there was a lot of, like, discussion around, like, everyone's in low-income countries and therefore, you know, the poverty levels and what we need to be addressing is all here. Mm. You know, so it was almost like the call to action in a way. Mm. Um, This is where everyone is and therefore we need to to get to do that. Yeah. So I, I think I'm 100% sure that was sort of the message. But anyway. but, th- but that's a call to action that gets kind of co-opted for two purposes, doesn't yes. it? So one is, it, we kind of talked about it in the last episode that we did about, you know, what kind of messages motivate you if you say refugee crisis. Yes. You know, do you think that's a, there's two different reasons why you might think that's a bad thing. Yes. You know, if you say all the people in the world are poor, <laughs> you can use that for a few different reasons to either motivate people or to scare people into thinking that they you know take your jabs yeah i think this is one reason i wanted to do this is because we did talk about that kind of language and the crisis word and how that's mm. shaped and put around um okay you I, i'm sort of getting a feeling listeners that tia might be the wrong person to speak with <laughs> <laughs> but let's see um question three in the last 20 years the proportion of the world population living in extreme poverty has A, almost doubled. B, remained more or less the same. C, almost halved. Over the last 20 years, the proportion of the people who have been living in poverty. Extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. Doubled, halved or stayed the same? Yes. Halved. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) But this, so this one I find interesting because, and I mean, it's extreme poverty, right? So it's the very lower end end of the spectrum, if you like. What I think is interesting about this is the story we hear people tell in the nonprofit sector is that actually this is a crisis. It's, it's a lot of people that this is happening to. I don't recall personally seeing a message that says we've almost halved extreme poverty. Mm. Let's celebrate that. Yeah. Uh, I don't ever recall hearing that message, but I don't know if you have. It's because the other half are dead. That's why. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's and, how we halved it. <laughs> That's a terrible thought. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but I suppose like, that the tension here is that like you can celebrate that, but it's still, there's still people living in extreme poverty. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a hard how you put out those two messages together. When was this published, by the way? 2019. Okay. So the other yeah. thing that's missing here, yeah, exactly, is that COVID may have really changed that. But would it have put significantly enough? The message we often hear post 2020 is that COVID is a significant driver for us regressing in a lot of the sustainable, like a lot of the gains we made through the sustainable development goals and the millennium development goals. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I feel like a millennium ago. Yeah. (laughs) We've retracted pretty significantly. So a lot of those gains have shrunk 
Yeah. And maybe um, we should actually record a caveat at the start of this, that the book was recorded and recorded. The book was written in 2019, so pre-COVID. And some of these may have been impacted by that. But whether it's that significantly enough is to be deterred TBD. I think maybe a clarifying point is that the book was published in 2019. You don't know when these facts were generated. Yes, that's Could true. Could have been 2018, 2017. That is Takes very a long time true. to write a book. Yes, very true. And the author died actually. Not because of extreme poverty. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Before we put that in the episode, can we just double check that bit? So let's move on to question four. What is the life expectancy of the world today? Today as in... The world. The, the, <laughs> the world. Pe- people in the world. Because I think the earth is going to die soon. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, of the world. A, 50 years. B, 60 years. Or C, 70 years. You mean people in the world, not uh, the planet. What is the life expectancy of people in the world today? Okay. Although I will say the question is not worded like that. <laughs> no. Do I think the world has 70 more years in it? Fingers crossed, but... I'm not positive. Give me the ones again. 50, 60, 70. 70. Yes, indeed. I don't want to say that I'm catching a trend here, but uh, I've always been very good at multiple choice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because I mean, the problem is aging populations and what we do about them, right? Like in part, we've got sort of upside down demographics in many parts of the world where you have a massive proportion of your society who is much older than the proportion of societies that are younger and what that means and how countries don't take care of it's elderly people. Yeah. And we know it's a problem because there's loads of them. Although Japan is doing some really interesting things with their elderly population. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like retraining them and doing courses and stuff because for a long time as well, like you had this gender dynamic of women being the primary people responsible for domestic life. But you know, heterosexual couples, women always die sooner than the men for some reason because women have been taking care of these fucking fools for so long. So then the wives die. The husbands don't know how to cook for themselves. So they've got these like courses now where they're teaching men who were former like captains of industry and Japanese business how to cook because they don't know how to like fry eggs and stuff because they killed their wives by being unruly. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But that's that's really cool. That's really nice to hear. Yeah. And and a real kind of active movement to to address that. And they do courses and stuff for them. So like going back to school. So there's like elderly people in like universities and stuff. What a joyful way to spend the, the rest of your life. And in some Scandinavian countries, I think they do this thing where it's they put like dorms, like university dorms in homes for elderly people. So they're like living with teenagers and stuff. Oh, I feel like you've mentioned this before. I think it's great. And some where they put like crushes, so daycare centers in the same place as you've got elderly people so that they can like be running around with little babies. Oh, that's very cute. Yeah. That I, is very cool. Elderly people have a very keen interest in what happens with our aging population. Elders. Yes. Because we can't say elderly people anymore. No, we can't say elderly people. Oh, I, I thought it was elder. I don't think we can say elders. Oh, elderly. We can't say elderly. elderly. That's it. We can Sorry. Say, we can't say elderly people. We can say elderly people. This was the conundrum. <laughs> Anyone. Ev- anyway. Uh, listen to the listen. last episode yeah. and then you'll understand why Oxfam's got us all twisted. <laughs> Um, so for, for this one, but but there are um, some cultures and countries around the world where. Name looking, one. <laughs> 
give me a second. Um, we're looking after elderly people. It's part of the family structure already, right? Yes. Like, and I'm thinking in, for example, I don't know, South Sudan, where like you live with elderly people and they form a key part of the community. It is basically and- a cultural expectation in all collectivist societies. Yes, exactly. Which are primarily brown ones. Yes, exactly. Thank you for, for making that easier for me. Um, <laughs> Right. So, so, you know, there's a real. Although, you know, the, in the example of the Scandies, I think there's a, I think that also is um, a space saving issue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, because you're dealing with a housing crisis in the same way, right? Because. Yeah. High turnover rates in old people's homes. Oof, yes, indeed. Old people, elderly people's homes. So this age one as well, like I I had to check when I read this book what my, like some countries' um, life expectancies because I thought they were lower and I and, and I had made assumptions and I, I'd carried those assumptions from my master's degree mm. that if you lived in Somalia or Afghanistan, your life expectancy was 40 or something. And so I had to check myself here and be like, I need to go and look and like get, yeah. you know, and, and I just checked again now and like in Somalia, it's like 56 years, mm. which is more than I thought. And in Sudan, 65 years, Ethiopia, 65 years. Right. And, you know, 10 years ago when I did my master's degree, I would have been like, you know, thinking it was 30, 40. And I'm, Your master's degree is from like the 1930s. Yeah, literally. <laughs> which is when people were dying at like 40 right. years. And, but, but I also feel like a lot of like the media, everything, it's like it's terrible in these places. You know, those are real kind of like the things around me reinforced my assumption. Yeah. So that's 100%. I've carried that. So when I had to check myself when I read this book five years ago, I remember being like, wow, okay, I need to like, I need to up my (laughs) factual knowledge. Because I also, you know, I have grandparents and people in my life who died when they were 60 and 65 in the UK. Mm -hmm. So I also carry a little bit uh, a racist assumption that my my grandparents were 60, 65, therefore other people in the world can't be the same age as my grandparents. The universality of your experience. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. So, so I think that also um, played a part in my assumption. Yeah. I mean, for me, there's also that kind of like two-step logic. Like we just peaked 8 billion people on the planet. Yeah. Like they're not all toddlers. Yeah. So I assume that part of that, you know, yeah. is because people are living longer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Question five, I think we got to, is that right? Yes. Um, There are two billion children in the world today. Well, Mm. as of (laughs) aged zero to 15 years old. How many children will there be in the year 2100, according to the United Nations? Is it A, 4 billion, B, 3 billion or C, 2 billion? Two billion? Correct. What made you say that? Well, because I'm expecting the trend to kind of stay the same. <laughs> not that like children are going to start like multiplying <laughs> exponentially. Right, right. Like people, just because people are living longer, it doesn't mean they're having like more children. Mm-hmm. And arguably as we get, if what's happening in America keeps going, we're going to like regress to, maybe that means that people won't be having children because they'll just stop having sex because they're afraid that they won't ever, ever be able Able to have an abortion again, which would be interesting. And then in which case you'd see global populations decline just from the American perspective, because, but uh, yeah, I just kind of assumed that it would likely stay the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> no, no, I'm keen just to hear like your, your, your workings out. And I I've think, read this book before, just by the way. Have you? No, no you I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, I checked. I also think that we have to take in mind and, and 
I'm coming back to COVID again here because there has been quite a few studies recently around the impacts of COVID kind of post, um, which are only starting to happen in the, in the last couple of years, obviously. And there was one such study in Uganda, I don't know if you saw this, northern Uganda, where there was a rise in teenage pregnancies because of COVID, because of the lockdowns, because, you know, people weren't going to school, women, girls weren't going to school. So there's been a huge increase in, in childbirth and um, teenage pregnancies oh. because of the impacts of lockdown yeah. um, and gender-based violence so i think that there's there's going to be more research and nuggets like that that appear around the world because of the impacts of lockdown did you see that report that came out that said there are no long-term mental health effects from covid or something like that no (laughs) oh my gosh i I was like what wow who published that and what was that let me just double check that i'm right so there's one in the guardian that came out Pandemic resulted in minimal changes in mental health symptoms among the general population, according to a review of 137 studies. I don't know how many was in the studies. But yeah, the title of this one from The Guardian is COVID's effect on mental health not as great as first thought. We still don't really know how we all experience, like what that collective trauma looked like for everyone and something like what you're describing now like if you were forced to lock down with an abuser like how can you i mean we don't know what proportion of the eight billion people who were experiencing you know covid like how how many people that impacted but i just i feel like it's a little bit premature to rely on 137 studies to know that covid didn't have a long-term mental health impact like it was a pandemic so Unless your study included a statistically significant portion of the human population, fook off with your findings because it just doesn't feel it doesn't resonate with my experience. Yeah, same. I I totally agree with you. I'm I'm shocked by that. I had this expectation that maybe the government of the UK would like the government of the UK, (laughs) the UK government would, I don't know, do some kind of like mental health group. So anyone anywhere in the UK could go to a group and talk about their experience with COVID. Like, let's talk about it because because I just that, that report is shocking to me. But they don't need to, because even to Today, people are still like lockdown. Whoa. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yes. even still today, I was overhearing a conversation where people, like a group of people, were talking about lockdown. And I was like, oh, like, I just need to move on from this space. But they're still talking about this April. Eh, it's the 23rd of April, 2023. Oh. That's cool. Maybe that's why they're doing the national emergency test today. So, yeah, I, I, people are still talking about it. Like, I don't really think it's as easy as as saying that, you know, the impact that we had planned, that we anticipated wasn't as great because you don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, I totally you can't, with you. You can't know in a way that you can make definitive statements like that. Nobody yeah. asked me how I'm feeling. Same. <laughs> but you, you're always talking about how you're feeling. Yeah, <laughs> shut up. Right, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even start. <laughs> um, I actually also overheard. Maybe we should have a um a segment called Overheard on the Tube because I overhear all sorts of things. Yeah, but I cycle and I run because I'm an athlete now. So overheard I don't at the over- gym. I don't overhear things. No, no, no. Headphones in. Okay. Well, I'll have a segment then because I overheard two white men talking about the diversity. <laughs> On the, they literally said the diversity issue mm. on the tube. This is a relevant story, but it's just come to my mind. Okay. Um, and they were doing something, I think, with a marriage.
Marathon, which is happening today, the London Marathon. Good luck to everyone who's running the London Marathon today. I'm going to run the London Marathon. Whoop! Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, and they had like flags and stuff and they were talking about how people organizing it or whatever were looking for diversity and where was the white man's role and like, you know, stuff like this. And I was like, and there was someone opposite me reading a book and they went, like they, they literally <laughs> looked over their book at them. Um, but I had to get off at the next stop. So unfortunately I couldn't hear the rest of it. I'm confused. Were they trying to figure out what their role was in like <laughs> advancing diversity of the London Marathon or... I think representation in terms of like the organizing group. Um, of the London Marathon. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. kind of like what I thought. But I, I'm I'm obviously adding my own meaning to what they were sure. saying. I kind of feel like when it comes to running, we are really, really good at running away from white people. I think that's often why like long distance runners are black. Yeah. Or like Mo Farah. Yeah. It's his last marathon today, by the way. Oh. He's retiring after today. So good luck, Mo Farah. Good luck, Mo. And, and thank you for sharing your truth. Yes. Remember his? Yes. That's right. Yeah. Um, Go watch that thing about Mo Farah. He's and, dope. and for running for, for the UK, you know, like we've kind of claimed anyway. Oh God, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, you don't own Mo Farah. Yeah, <laughs> let's be clear um sorry massive deviation then no um, but can we just go back to it i'm i think we should run the london marathon so we yes um well i want to do it and can i wave a flag you can wave whatever flag you want but you're gonna run it uh i think you would enjoy it i think you i talked would... about how you liked the couch to 5k or whatever <laughs> yes i agree i think i would really love it but I'd find the training very hard. How do you know? Um, because I struggle to, to run now. But if I had like a long-term goal, I suppose. Yes, the long-term goal is the marathon. You have a year. I went from running, the longest I'd run was 15 minutes. Now I run for like three hours at a time. And that's in the span of just 12 weeks. That's amazing. I never thought, I ran a half marathon at the gym the other day. And then in the same week, I ran 15K. That's 35K in one week. So admirable. Just for shits and giggles. I, I am amazed. I think you're doing an excellent job. You Thank you. I, I am excellent. But my point is that I didn't think I had such a mental block about doing it. And then I just did it. And it just kind of like snuck up on me week after week. So yeah. my point is I... I think you could do it. You were a much confident runner than I was when I first started running. I, th I think for me, there's also like a mind shift between like running fast and running longer that I need to kind of grapple with, you know, because I do like running, but I like a fast run, you know, for like 15, 20 minutes. And I think to, to get into that longer run, you've got to slow down a bit. And you've got to like embrace the fact that you're going to be doing that for, you know, a longer period of time. Yeah. I also need to get a good playlist. That really motivates me. But yeah, I'm with you. Okay. Let me, let me ponder that some more. Please. I'm just going to sign you up. How does that sound? Oh gosh. <laughs> I think you <laughs> need some external encouragement to do it. Okay. If we're here in a year, listeners, let's see. I'm just going to start deducting the race amount from your salary and then... <laughs> How much is it? I don't know. <laughs> but you need some skin in the game. You also have to like apply. You don't automatically get it. Yeah, I'm going to apply. <laughs> but you can apply for like you can apply for the, like a non-profit organization to get you seats. To get, oh. you, to get you bibs. Oh God, I'd feel incredibly guilty then if I didn't run. Yeah. <laughs> 
What's the most vulnerable group? <laughs> no, 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 no. I is would... the most no, vulnerable oh and will run for that. No. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, I, I, I would have a very, very hard time saying no then. There we go. That's what it That's is. That's my weakness. All right, listeners. Uh, Sorry, slight deviation. Add us on at JRNY podcast on Twitter to let us know who Lauren should be running for, which will generate so much guilt that she won't give up on the London Marathon. I'll just run it because I'm a machine. Let's um, start a hashtag make Lauren run. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren is a couch to 40K. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's easy. Okay. It's so easy. Once you do it, I'm telling you, do the 18 week program with me and then you just do that like three times and then you're done. You can do it. I'd be so proud of myself if I did that. I'd be really proud of you. I would do something really nice for you. I would be nice to you for three weeks. Could be worth it. Consistently. (laughs) (laughs) We supposed to every three hours. Any fucking annoying thing you say, I'd be like, yeah, that's great, Lauren. (laughs) For three weeks. Imagine how that would feel. You'd be so happy. Okay, okay, okay. Let's see, let's see. All right. So, six. The UN predicts that by 2100, the world population will have increased by another 4 billion people. What is the main reason? Is it A, there will be more children aged below 15? B, there will be more adults aged 15 to 74? C, there will be more very old people aged 75 and older? There'll be more very old people. That's incorrect. Is it the is it B? Yeah. Yeah. There'll be more adults. But their their adult category is to seventy four is is massive. I would consider that very old people. <laughs> oh, don't tell someone who's seventy that. No. <laughs> but yeah, so I have a question about the categorization here and, mm. and maybe there's some notes somewhere in this book um that I'll revisit. But I guess actually I was answering that question too fast because we just talked about like life expectancy being around seventy. Mm. But then I assumed that it would, we would just live longer. So there would be lots more older people. Yeah. Cause like, you know, that what's that community in Italy and they're all like 110 Oh yeah. and they just drink red wine and smoke cigarettes all day long and people don't understand why they're living so long. Yeah. That sounds like fucking heaven. Yeah. It does. Bit, just doesn't it? being in the Mediterranean, yeah. drinking red wine, smoking cigarettes and just thriving. Yeah. I feel that a lot. <laughs> Neither of us smoke, but (laughs) I mean, uh, we're going to be doing a marathon, so we are going to do a marathon. Oh, like the language you're you just slowly see. It's just all about just dropping it in. Question seven. How did the number of deaths per year from natural disasters change over the last hundred years? Pre-COVID. A, more than doubled. B, remained about the same. Or C, decreased to less than half. Halved. Decreased to less than half. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which is, I think, an interesting one for our sector, right? Because Mm. there also has to be a lot of messages out there in terms of responding to a disaster. I actually think this might be an interesting one around climate 
change and the disasters that we're seeing with climate change. Because if people's deaths are reducing, but climate crisis is increasing, I, I don't know. Like, mm. And this was in 2019. So the climate crisis was well underway. Yeah. It has been for many yeah, years. For many years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, you know, Anything so, in the last 150 years and we're still done. <laughs> exactly. So, so then this one kind of hits a little bit. I'm confused now a little bit about like climate change is getting worse and people are dying from climate change. Could it be something about our infrastructure is different? Yeah, yes. We know a bit more about infection. <laughs> I don't know. You said the last hundred years, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think so, we know a little bit more about it. Yeah. Mm. Although we know, we personally know that the responses to it are not, not still not great. <laughs> yeah, no. How it's responded to is different, but I'm, mm. I more mean like individual resilience or community resilience maybe looks a little bit different than it did a hundred years ago, I guess. Yeah. I'm going to skip question eight. Okay. Just because it's got little maps that people can't see. Okay. And it's about the distribution of the people in the world, the 7 billion people in the world. Okay. Uh, which I think you would know the answer to. Yes. So question nine, mm. how many of the world's one-year-old children today have been vaccinated against some disease? Is it A, 20%, B, 50% or C, 80%? Some disease. Yeah, some disease. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's going to be pretty high, right? It's going to be like 80%. Yeah, exactly. Some, some vaccination. Yeah, so it is 80%, yeah. But there would have been a regression because of fucking stupid ass. What's her name? McCarthy? Fucking on this whole anti-vax thing. I, if you're an anti-vaxxer, shut this off right now because I'm in a fucking rage. I have some... I've got two friends who are anti-vaxxers. Oh, sorry. I had two friends who were anti-vaxxers. I said, don't come anywhere near me because you're white bullshit and this like whole entitlement. There are people all over the world who would love to have access to free vaccinations. It is the peak white entitlement to reject them. Like whatever the Google search you did is not significant enough to challenge the entirety of the scientific community and all of that accumulated knowledge. Like it's just so arrogant when people are like, don't have like these, these suspicions about vaccines. Yeah. Because it assumes that your Google search was so significant to like topple hundreds of years of research and learning and growth and development. Like... Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, they were your friends. They were, yeah. <laughs> it, when that, and I was like, oh, so you're going to get a COVID vaccine? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that to them because this this revelation came out nearly five years ago. Wow. And I have not spoken a word to them since. And yes, sounds very fair. Um, I did see there's been a vaccine for malaria that's been developed now. And I think Ghana is the first country in the world that has agreed to take some of it. I have a feeling it's something to do with the COVID vaccine people. <laughs> some of the groups who developed COVID. Yeah. COVID. Developed COVID, the vaccine. And... COVAX, which is like UNICEF, WHO and a mix of other health organizations are going to be funding it for them. So yes, exciting news there. I have some curiosities about mosquitoes. I like this phrase. It's cute. What? Keep going. What? I have some curiosities. I have some curiosities about how this is going to work because mosquitoes become resistant to things. So they can develop resistance to certain types of pesticides, for example. So I just wonder, and those are the ones that are like really, really terrifying. And there's some 
very, very interesting research that's been done and some projects that are done on how to sterilize mosquitoes instead of trying to create, instead of trying to go at it from the root of like using insecticides or using anti-malarials or things like that, like a completely different route because they can develop resistance. But there are two kinds of malaria, right? There's one that like stays with you for a long time and one that doesn't. Sure. And so I wonder if like... I'm not sure if it's a distinction between either of those, but like... Yeah. I'm I'm more talking about the mosquitoes themselves. So I wonder if like they will just become smarter than the vaccine. Well, yeah. That's like they'll evolve with the vaccine in the same way that they have evolved... To develop a some have evolved to develop a resistance to yeah this is interesting and and one i think that well you'd hope that the who would be able to monitor but let's see question 10 worldwide 30 year old men have spent 10 years in school on average how many years have women of the same age spent in school a nine years b six years or c three years nine Correct. Yes, because I'm a genius. And and <laughs> you're really screwing with the assumptions behind the survey. <laughs> Don't bring your racialized assumptions into this space. <laughs> but I think there is something here about the gap between men and women that you think is wider than it is in some instances. Mm. However, I will say that the wording around this question and that it's 30-year-old people, I'm not sure why or whether it would affect it if you went up or down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, so, I- so, and or if you said 50 years have been school 12 years or whatever you know plus university plus you know that would I imagine have some variation I mean I also like this is why Hans I know you're dead or we suspect you're dead (laughs) 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 this is too much but like this is a manipulation of information to a certain extent and I'm just like flowing with this thing right because what you're effectively describing is that an eighth grade education yeah (laughs) like that's nine years of some school yeah so yeah even um even just primary school in some instances yeah depending on where you go yeah but like if i count i mean if it's it's less than that if you are in a place that has like a nursery I don't know how they're calculating education, but in a mm. educational environment that is not based in the home could be nursery in the UK, nursery, reception, one, two, three, four, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like you're, you're basically describing people with a seventh to eighth grade to ninth grade education. Yes. Which, again, I would say basically doesn't really catch you when you start menstruating. Yeah. So like, sure, sure, Hans. So he did die, by the way. Um, I was right. But not because of me. But not because of you. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So moving on. (laughs) Cool. In question 11, in 1996, tigers, giant pandas and black rhinos were all listed as endangered. How many of these three species are more critically endangered today? A, two of them. B, one of them. C, none of them. Give me it. Rhinos. Tigers, giant pandas and black rhinos. It was a fucking load of giant pandas. I know that. They're getting <laughs> swapped around like China's just giving them away. I'll take one. <laughs> okay. So not giant pandas. Tigers, you said? Yes. Well, I know that is it India that just got a bunch more tigers. So I watch Tiger King. They're everywhere. <laughs> Where was Tiger King? In America, wasn't it? America's oh, fucking no. filthy with tigers. So yeah. Rhinos. Black rhinos specifically. Mm. That's the one I'm not sure about. 
because I don't know, for some reason people think they can get their dick hard with fucking rhino horns. Your your dick is just broken. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot about like these things going into stamina for people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it is there an option for one? Yes, B. So A2 B1, C, none. But then now people are protecting them. So like there's like military, there's like ex-US military who are working on game reserves and like sniping, like shooting poachers in the face. Wow, that is interesting. I would love that job. Yeah, you'd be good at that. I'm going to say zero. Correct. Hmm. None of them. And so I guess the assumption here is that we we assume that they're all now almost gone you know, like into critically because they started it endangered. And I do remember again, this coming back to my education, you know, talk around tigers, giant pandas and black rhinos and the adverts on TV and, you know, it all being very much like these are going to die out. Uh, But this is not to say that like, there aren't other animals that might have taken that place, yeah. right? Like, as you say, that might have been because they were more protected because of that issue and people have put in a lot of effort at the expense of something else. Sure. You know, the dodo's gone. Yeah, fuck them. They're dumb as hell though. <laughs> that was also a really long time ago. <laughs> now, if you really want to get your dick hard, dodo meat. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> They've got that one in the National History Museum. <laughs> Not obviously a real one, guys. It's a stuffed one or yeah. whatever. They're massive, though. We saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're fucking as tall as me, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, this is the thing that we were talking about before. Just saying that something's endangered, do you then go, oh, well, fuck it? Or do you go like, okay, right, let's like rally. So the fact that it was on the endangered list is the reason why it's not anymore. It's the same argument why we shouldn't pull up the brakes on certain things. So... Malaria, we're talking about that just now. So there are lots of places where malaria was just on the verge of being eradicated. But then people were like, oh, cool, we're like nearly done with malaria. So let's just shift our funding to something else. And then malaria comes back. It's like when people stop taking, um, you know, you get like a you have to take antibiotics for some reason. So for you, you know, strep throat, kissing disease, whatever. Um <laughs> For you, is that for me? <laughs> so like you you stop taking your antibiotics because you're not allowed to drink on them, a bit boring, you know. You stop taking them because you feel better. But then you get shitty strep throat stuff again, right? Because like you think it's sorted out, so you you put the brakes on. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of similar, is like there can be that impulse to But doesn't like, this like challenge the whole premise of this book in terms of negativity bias? Like it's not working with me, but yeah. Yeah, clearly. But like, you know, what you're saying is like, if there had not been um, some kind of negativity bias or something around maybe the rhinos or tigers or some kind of like, this is really, really bad, then maybe something would have happened. So maybe we should never be talking about the positive things in the world and and kind of challenges the entire premise of this book. Although I think, and maybe if we have time, we'll come on to this. There are some implications of negativity bias that could go wrong in terms of the over-exaggeration of things. But Mm. I suppose it comes down to like, what are you trying to achieve with what you're saying? Like, are you trying to achieve a call to action or are you trying to get people to be aware of what's real and what's not real? Right. To what end? Yeah. If I understand the world is a certain way and actually there are less people in extreme poverty, to what end? Yeah. I do nothing then, as you kind of say. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel really torn now. But I suppose on the other hand, when I read this book, it challenged assumptions that had been bedded in me since I was a kid or through education, because that might have been the point in which I was last 
really educated on something. <laughs> and I mean, like really targeted education. You know, I sat with books, I was forced to read stuff. And so that is like so embedded in my mind that then you have to actively kind of correct that as you move along, mm. which I just think maybe people don't do. Mm. Or at least I left some assumptions from them because I just had never needed to kind of correct it. So I don't know. I feel a bit like confused now about maybe the premise of this book and to what end. I completely agree. Shocking. That I oh, completely whoa, agree with you. everybody yeah. press a button. Yeah. <laughs> Just because there are less people living in extreme poverty doesn't mean that there aren't a fucking ton of people living in extreme poverty and that that's not and that that needs to be addressed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I can appreciate that in the entirety of the universe, there's less people, but there's still a lot of people and that doesn't matter. We, I think we were having this conversation before about like communications in the not for profit space, how there was a massive shift in us saying like there are billions of people in the world who are suffering and to moving towards more single individualized stories because what they found is that people couldn't really cope with the idea that there were billions of people suffering. They felt yeah. debilitated by that. So yes. instead of showing like in fundraising images of like whole populations of people like covered in fucking flies and whatever sort of poverty porn people were doing at the time, although we know some people who are still doing that. <laughs> I'm looking at you. Beep. <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs> <laughs> Instead of doing that, they go to more personal stories. So this is so-and-so and they are doing whatever and this is fucking bullshit. So you need to do this because now as a human being, I'm like, okay, I can do something about this one person. Even if you're actually not doing anything about that single individual, it's a reframing of the narrative in a way that you can digest it easier. Yes. Whereas when we hear the whole world is on fire, you're all going to die. It's a little bit harder to be like, okay, what can I do about that? It requires more cognitive processing to think through what that's going to look like. What this book is, is like my own human assumptions based on like the saturation rate of certain messaging and like yeah. how my algorithms hit me. And the us and them narrative. Sure. Yeah. I think it's trying to to challenge. Absolutely. But the, the, the issue is that when I look at something, so I can look at the same data as you do and I will see it. I could see it in a completely different way and how I communicate that to somebody else. It's it's refugee crisis. Mm -hmm. I might see refugee crisis and be like, close the border. Yeah. Whereas you might see refugee crisis and be like, open the border. Yeah. You know what I mean? 100%. So like that, that for me is the problem is how people's assumptions and bias and experience, world life experience impact their interpretation of fact. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And it may be that the book does talk about the interpretation of fact. I think that's a really interesting point. And one other one I want to raise is also we've talked, as I said, about these questions and the kinds of age population data. But what about other data like crime rates and stuff that also has a negative bias? Like there's not really any questions here that have, have been like around perceptions of crime, which right. I think could also go wrong. Um, yeah. You know, like if something's happened close to you, you might then have this kind of worldview of like, oh my gosh, this area has like major crime rates and so on and act, you know, accordingly or um, be closed off and then have that us and them narrative and, you know depending on who did it, that will totally skew your worldview potentially. So I'm just curious as well about the kind of data that this book is talking about isn't necessarily data that might influence that side of you. There's a book I'm struggling to figure, to remember the name of it, but it's basically a book that is just 
data visualizations. And one of the things that they talk about is um, crime rates. Yeah. And so, but it's kind of, it's not dissimilar to what you're you're describing there, but the point is about gun violence in America. Basically what they're showing you in this data visualization is that more people die from completing suicide with guns than they do mass shootings. Whereas based on what you hear in the news, you would assume that it's the other way around. Yes, exactly. I, I do think things like this are really useful from a fact perspective, from like a clean fact perspective, if you can say there's a clean fact perspective. Yes. But the thing that we always talk about in our work is like you, we can, we can be looking at evidence, but it doesn't, we can't separate ourselves. Like there, can there ever be objective truth? Like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when you're looking at it, when you're interpreting it, this is just a consolidation of data that somebody else consolidated, right? Like it doesn't yes. necessarily mean that everything is visible and all things are known. Even when you look at like rates of sexual violence, you can't know what isn't known. You can't know how many women and girls don't report. So like if you put that as a, as a, you can pull that up as a data visualization, you can pull that up as a fact all you want, but that may not necessarily be known. And same in, in with this book here on number of girls and their education. Mm. Does that include rural communities in wherever that, you know, yeah, yeah, or like inaccessible communities in the Amazon? Like, do you, do you see what I mean? Like, what are we classifying as education first off? Yeah, 100%. Homeschooling? What, like, what are we talking about? And yeah, how could you know? Yeah, there's a real complexity and nuance behind any fact in this instance. So yeah, yeah, I agree. What Hans Rosling and the other authors talk about is also the gap instinct, which is like, What's that mean? it is a little bit like the us and them, like the, the, fi- the, the, the difficulty with comparison averages and like putting two sets of things side by side with each other. Like this is what girls education rates are like in X country. And here's what it's like in another. And therefore they are comparative, you know, without acknowledging the nuances and complexities behind it. And this kind of like quick assumption to um, us and them. And that, that there is this like, Oh, it's really good here and really bad here. Cause it's not, exactly like that as you're saying so I think that's kind of what you're you're speaking to a little bit it's like when people want us to do value for money assessments on multi-country programs (laughs) yeah and I'm like I can't I can't put these things I'm telling you information back to back but I'm not comparing them with each other because there's no they're not equivalent to each other yes and there's actually um, a website here called um, Think Insights how should consultants overcome the uh, gap instinct or the comparison so we'll, we'll read that okay <laughs> you'll read um, it and then you'll tell me what yes mean. exactly okay um so that's it really there's a couple of, of additional questions but i think we get the, <laughs> we get the message now that i'm a genius um there's one about electricity i've only missed one i'm amazing yeah i mean how many people in the world have access to electricity but i think you get the trend a lot. um yes um <laughs> which is challenging. How would you define access? Yes, exactly. Um, there we go. There's the message behind the See? book too. I mean, I recommend reading it to have and dive into these discussions in your head. And also I think in the work that we do, and if you're also a consultant like us, you are looking at lots of data and, and people are trying to get you to bring them together and make generalizations or, you know, and, and so many assumptions are embedded in all of this data. So I think it's a, a useful book to look at. There is like critique, as Tia is saying, like it, it oversimplifies complex issues and ignores the systemic inequalities and power dynamics. 
analytics, which we talk about a lot on this sector in terms of where that data is coming from and who's collecting it and why. So I think a little bit of that is perhaps missing. I think one of the takeaways for me in this one is that critical lens when you're looking at something yeah. and what it means to be communicating one thing or another, right? Like refugee crisis, refugee crisis. When we're working, when we're working with clients, how we present the picture touches people in different ways. Even if we're like, look, we've triangulated, this is what it is. We are putting our own interpretation on what that means, knowing that that's going to affect a person in a very particular way Yeah, and different stakeholders in different ways. So I think that's kind of a, a thing that's kind of coming back to me is, but I also feel like there is utility in the negativity bias as you were getting at before, right? Like if I tell you your programming is not working for 80% of your target groups, what the fuck? If I tell you that versus 20% of people are showing like real sustainable change, like this is intergenerational stuff or like, well, you know, whatever. Th that's also a really positive story to tell. Mm. But if I tell you about the 80% where you're really fucking shit up, mm. does that mean you're going to do better? I don't know. <laughs> it might. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, the other side of the coin is if you're like, you know, your work is amazing. Look at these five people that have now gone on to do X, Y, Z and the impact is great in that 10%, is that more mobilizing and motivating? Because you're like, we've changed this for 10% of people. We can continue to do this. So I don't know. My takeaway is maybe there's a balance needed here. <laughs> Which is a really boring conclusion. Your I know. thing is always there's a balance needed. <laughs> you're so fucking boring. <laughs> I think that we need to figure out the person's black rhino. In the world of finite resources, which endangered species would you choose to save? Oof. It's a hard one. I'm asking. I don't know if I know what, what um, animals are now endangered. How about, I will tell you. The snow leopard. Javan rhinos. Javan. A kind of leopard. Sunanda Island tiger. Mountain gorillas. There's a kind of orangutan. A porpoise. Black rhinos are on this list. Oh, okay. So for me, it would be the orangutan or the mountain gorillas. Why? Because they're most like us. Um, African forest elephants. Oh. There's two types of orang orangutan on here. And then there's a hawksbill turtle. Oh, well, obviously I want to save them all. Um, but I said those two, I guess, because... You can only pick one. Oh, well, orangutan then. Because I've seen the devastation of the, like what's happening to the orangutans personally. And I know this <laughs> kind of speaks a little bit to some things we were talking about earlier, but I, I've personally seen like the devastation. It's, it's horrendous. Mm. So I feel, you know, a bit of a like a fuck, you know. Mm. And, and But the problem is also with the climate crisis and animals endangered, I've often felt a bit oversaturated by adverts about this is happening here and you need to save this animal. WWF adverts mostly. The World, um, Worldwide White, World Wildlife Federation. That's right. <laughs> not the uh, fighting WWF. <laughs> um, wrestling. World yeah, Wrestling Federation. Not World Wrestling. Uh, you know, their adverts stand out in my mind, actually, as things I see quite a lot. Mm. Save this snow leopard, send two pounds a month and you'll get a cuddly toy or whatever. And it often it used to be like you'd see the orangutans like um, 
forests being destroyed and mm. stuff and yeah i would go elephant african forest elephants just because elephants are such there's a really good book called when elephants weep it's very sad it's about the emotional lives of animals with a heavy emphasis on elephants there's a documentary and it might be exactly the same name now i don't know but it's about elephants crying it's interesting that you hate elephants so much i don't i love you elephants. wouldn't say you'd, you'd let them die i love you elephants bitch. whatever well they don't feel it oh. you picked two other animals before the elephant maybe it's definitely WWF that I need to run for. And they cry. <laughs> Look at the picture of this oh, baby. No. Oh, yeah. We don't give a shit about the turtle, though. And the the actual picture of the turtle looks like it's crying. Stop Whoa. it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we'll go check out WWF. They're, they're actually one of the ones that I think are all right. Yeah. They refer to themselves internally as pandas, I think. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Um. Okay. <laughs> So that was a very interesting journey across factfulness. Yeah, my takeaway is is that I think the book is is a good read if you can critically frame it this way and also frame it with consideration for what COVID may have done to these figures or the facts it talks about and being mindful of the power dynamics that um, may be less considered. Overall, it sounds like the book is like, it's not as bad, whereas our perspective is it's not as bad as you think but it's still fucking terrible <laughs> and there you have it that's a t-shirt yes love it <laughs> do you think they'll let me write the forward for the next uh, version of this book i highly doubt it <laughs> <laughs> all right cool well good job i love taking a quiz yes me too i test well indeed mm. i'll try and quiz someone else next time okay i'm lauren i'm tia and this is the journey to transformation bye bye Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.